Clark, and this is Dreams of Black Wall Street. Listen, we have shared a lot of history with listeners like yourself on this podcast, but there is so much more that deserves our attention. So if you would be so kind, help us keep it going by going online to rate, review, and subscribe to Dreams of Black Wall Street on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. That was a song called Old Mr. Block, sung by a group of African-American women members of the Amalgamated Clothing Workers of America Union who were on strike at a local plant in Wilmington, North Carolina. It was recorded by Arthur Miller for the Radio Research Project at the Library of Congress and the United States Public Health Service in the fall of 1941. The recording is courtesy of the American Folklife Center at the Library of Congress. We'll go back to Wilmington a bit later, but first, a look at present-day Durham. U.S. News ranked Raleigh and Durham, North Carolina, the number two best place to live after Boulder, Colorado, for the 2021-2022 year. The publication analyzed the 150 most populous metro areas. Those that made the top of the list had to have good value, desirability as a place to live, a thriving job market, and good quality of life. A report by Raleigh TV station WRAL about the ranking says, quote, the area was highlighted for its research technology roots and collegiate rivalries and given a 7.5 overall score. The region has seen a growing population base for decades, in part due to an attractive job market, relative affordability and nationally recognized universities. A summary from the magazine noted this tri-city region known as the Triangle is luring new residents every day with strong job growth and high quality of life. The Triangle was also praised for a strong sense of community and described many of the area's residents as young, friendly, diverse, and educated, end quote. While all of this is certainly good news for the Raleigh-Durham community, Durham is indeed a tale of two cities and two economies. Bull City 150 is an organization that works to uncover the history of housing inequality in Durham. It uses history exhibitions, according to the organization, to, quote, do extensive community engagement and facilitate educational opportunities, deep dialogue, and a collective reckoning about how we got here and what is needed to ensure that we do not repeat the mistakes of the past, end quote. 
This includes a really well done virtual exhibit, which can be found by visiting the organization's website at www.bullcity150.org. If you navigate to the tab called Dismantling Hey Thai, you'll see a pretty comprehensive yet simple explanation of how Hey Thai and Black Wall Street fell into decline never to recover to the state of its former glory. This story does not include a racially motivated riot, massacre, or the like, similar to some of the other Black communities we've explored on this podcast, which is pretty remarkable given the history of the South. Still, the racially motivated discriminatory events that led to the decline of Durham has had similarly devastating consequences for African Americans in Durham that persist until the present day. Much of this has to do with something we've talked about on this podcast previously when analyzing once thriving Black American communities, urban renewal, or as folks in Durham and elsewhere call it, urban removal. According to BC 150, in the late 1960s, Durham city officials set a plan in motion to tear down dozens of buildings in the area, with the exception of St. Joseph's AMA Church. Quote, urban renewal and the Durham freeway destroyed much and would replace little. In the end, over 4,000 families and 500 businesses were displaced. The price tag for the destruction of Haiti was $300 million in today's dollars, three quarters of which was paid for by the federal government. But the promise of a renewed Haiti never came. End quote. As we've noted on this podcast previously, this was not an isolated phenomena, but a nationwide effort. BC 150 also makes that clear. Quote, between 1949 and 1973, the U.S. government bulldozed 2,500 neighborhoods in 993 American cities through urban renewal. A million people were displaced by the program. End quote. So who was behind the destruction of Haiti and Black Wall Street? According to BC 150, a number of people. Certainly Durham city officials at the time were key players. Quote, the city of Durham was the most powerful decision maker at the table. City officials were eager to receive large amounts of money from the federal government, which was earmarked for demolition and clearance of so-called blighted areas. City officials believed they, not the poor themselves, had the solution to the problems facing poor neighborhoods. Tear it all down and start over. End quote. The white business community also had a part to play, according to the organization, quote, white business interests were enthusiastic about building a freeway to relieve congestion downtown and connect the newly planned Research Triangle Park. They also saw opportunities for private development in the clearance areas and projected an increase in the city's tax base, end quote. Some of the stakeholders in this process were also members of Durham's own Black community. This fact divided the community so dramatically that the division remains among some longtime residents to this day. Quote, the city made three big promises to the Black community. New housing, new commercial development, and major infrastructure improvements in Black neighborhoods. Most working class Black people knew little about urban renewal or how it would impact their lives, but voted in a block with the Durham Committee on Negro Affairs. End quote. They did this, according to BC 150, to increase their political influence with a significant amount of encouragement from the Durham Committee on Negro Affairs, which pushed the urban renewal bond referendum in the year 1963 because members were convinced it would bring back investments, which it declined in Black neighborhoods. Quote, when urban renewal went to public vote on a bond referendum, over 90% of Black people voted in support. End quote. Black Durham was promised that the Haiti community would be revitalized and that lost housing would be adequately replaced. This never happened. The Black business community, Black leaders, and the Haiti community in general felt utterly betrayed. Many saw it as another scheme to steal Black-owned property. Hopes that investors would come knocking to develop cleared land also never materialized. Additionally, the ongoing construction and demolition over the next decade became a hindrance to the success and stability of the Black businesses that remained. According to its website, Haiti Reborn is a revitalization project that focuses on redevelopment of the community surrounding Fayetteville Street Corridor. The project director is actually Dr. Henry McCoy, who lent his voice and expertise to this podcast several times this season. According to the organization, quote, Haiti plummeted into the same fate of many of America's urban communities. 
disinvestment, poverty, and crime now floods streets that once flourished with Black wealth and opportunity. This problem is not unique to Durham, but it's here on these historic grounds that big, bold, and innovative ideas can be researched, hatched, developed, incubated, nurtured, financed, and scaled to create a more racially equitable city, state, nation, and world. End quote. The organization has been at the forefront of redevelopment efforts in Haiti recently, and that includes a piece of property called Fayette Place. The Ninth Street Journal describes its location as lying at the corner of East Umstead and Grant Streets. Quote, a metallic fence that's taller than a street lamp post encloses the 20-acre site. But even from the outside, anyone can see that the honey-colored grass that isn't mowed, the clusters of crumbling red bricks that aren't paved, the bits of trash that are carried inside by the wind or trespassers, end quote. According to ABC 11 in Morrisville, the Durham Housing Authority is trying to triple the number of affordable homes in downtown Durham, with more than 5,000 people on the waiting list for public housing. The DHA is redeveloping or building 1,700 housing units as part of at least eight new projects. One of those projects includes Fayette Place. ABC 11 reports, quote, and then there's the controversial land in Haiti. DHA is moving forward with developers on this project despite objections from the development group Haiti Reborn, who earlier this year wrote a formal letter protesting DHA's decision to go with another developer, citing the agency violated its own policy and left them out of the process. DHA denied the claim last month. Haiti Reborn is now asking the city council and Mayor Elaine O'Neill to get involved. End quote. In other areas, Durham has made significant progress. There's a reason it was ranked the second best place to live in the U.S., as I mentioned in the beginning of this episode. Representation is one of those areas where Durham is improving. In December of 2021, Elaine O'Neill became the city's first African-American mayor. The former attorney, academic administrator, and judge turned politician recently gave her State of the City address, in which she addressed some of the problems Black Durham is facing. Economic prosperity. Wow. Sticky, sticky, sticky. I have been struck by the fact that there are two main streets in Durham. I said that during the campaign. It's been going on for years now. On one end of Main Street, you see the high rises. The shops, the amenities that illustrate the leaps towards prosperity that many in Durham have experienced over the last few years. And we're glad of that. Nobody's hating. We're glad of that. We want our city to grow. But on the other end, on the other side of Main Street, you see a community that has not kept up with the prosperity. Main Street, it runs through the heart of Durham. The time has come to stitch that quilt and make Durham equitable for all, everyone, everybody, every family, every child, every man, Every woman that calls Durham home needs to share in Durham's prosperity. Now, part of this rebalancing, you know, has to include, let's be real, investing in areas of our city that have been negatively impacted by urban renewal and decades of neglect. 
the black community, and thus Durham at large, we've never recovered from the loss of those businesses at Haiti. We've never recovered from that. To that end, the city is supporting a partnership between Haiti Heritage Foundation and the Urban Land Institute on a mission to explore the redevelopment of the Fayetteville Street Corridor with a community-centered mindset, community-centered mindset, ensuring that the community, what I say, the community, y'all hear community? All right. Is involved in both planning and economic participation. Hey, Ty, we'll come back. As Durham continues to grow, we must ensure that our city's uh, prosperity makes it to every corner of Durham. This can only happen if our city remains fiscally responsible and provides a welcoming environment for large and small businesses that produce quality jobs and pays living wages. We must focus on expanding public-private partnerships that benefit our cities and the city our residents and the city. Sorry about that. Since the pandemic start, the city has partnered with Durham County and Duke University to administer the Opportunity Land Loan Fund, the Opportunity Loan Fund, to lend monies to small businesses, which the pandemic has negatively impacted. Now, the fund comprises of three primary sources of capital. A million dollars provided by the city of Durham. $880,000 provided from Durham County. And a million dollars provided by Duke University. And they provide grants, grants, to impact the small businesses. Now, to date, 860000 of those dollars have been dispersed to 38 businesses, 29 of those minority-owned. There are $140,000 of city funds and $800,000 of county funds remaining. Y'all hear that? In this opportunity fund to provide low-cost financing via loans of $5,000 to $35,000 to eligible businesses. Effective tonight, the city council will be voting to modify the criteria to allow more businesses to access these loan funds. Now, if you are a Durham business owner and your business has been affected by the pandemic, I encourage you to contact the Carolina Small Business Development Fund. There is help. I also want to say a brief word about the over $50 million the city will receive in American Rescue Plan funds. In addition to offsetting revenue losses resulting from the pandemic, these funds can be used to address other community needs. Durham is taking an ongoing approach to, American, to the American Rescue Plan implementation that will continue to adapt based on community, stakeholder, and council feedback. Ongoing engagement, review, allocation, and evaluation will occur for the entire life cycle of this federal funding. The city council will soon be meeting to discuss the first round of eligible proposals submitted by Durham community members. Proposals that we receive encompass community resiliency, economic equality, equity, health and wellness, safe and stable housing. It's time to do something bold, everybody, and impactful with these funds. So I'm looking forward to this upcoming discussion among my council colleagues. We are also hoping to partner with our county commissioners who also receive funds to make some transformative changes so that 50 years from now, the next generation down, the next generation after that, you will be able to look and say, that's what we did with those funds here in Durham. It will, I hope, outlive everybody that's in this room tonight and watching us by internet. Those are the kinds of transformative uh, actions 
that we're looking to do. Of all the work of the shared economic prosperity, the city youth engagement work gives me the most hope for our young people. Let me tell you, as of as last week, y'all, we had over 1,500 youth between the ages of 14 to 24 have submitted their interest applications for Durham Youth Works Program. The Durham Youth Works uh, allows our young people to develop critical skills and explore career opportunities through paid summer internships. This number represents the largest number of interest applications received by the program in recent history. More than 77% of those who have submitted interest applications are between the ages of 14 and 17. These increased numbers demonstrate that the community's need is great and the youth of Durham are eager to step up to meet the challenge. But we need businesses. We need businesses. We need businesses that will help these young people to find summer employment and an opportunity to learn skills that can translate to a career path. My first jobs were with the city as a teenager. I worked for the fun caravan. I worked as a tennis court attendant. And then I worked as an assistant at the law library at my law school, which I later became dean of, interim dean. Okay, look at that. I am that kid that needed that summer job. So businesses, please, please, please. We have 1,500 who are waiting. We want to employ each and every last one of them this summer. Let's, let's shift gears. I gotta move fast so y'all won't be in here all night long looking at me like when she gonna finish. Let's talk about affordable housing. Mm, yes, a bugaboo. Oh boy, oh boy, oh boy, oh boy, oh boy. You know, we have to continue efforts to provide affordable housing. We can never stop. You all know what the divide looks like now. We all see it every day. Our city's community development department is deepening its work with the Durham Housing Authority and many other parties to address the urgency of now. We have an urgent need now, right now, for safe, inclusive, and affordable housing we have to build new residential units. We have to upgrade rental properties. And we have to provide some innovative ideas in that space. Now over the last year, the city of Durham committed almost $6.5 million in funding uh, received from the federal government to support the Durham Emergency Rental Assistance Program. 550 households who were behind in their rents and facing addictions due to evictions, I'm sorry, facing evictions due to the COVID-19 pandemic received financial help to stay in their homes through this partnership between the city of Durham, the Durham County Department of Social Services, and Legal Aid of North Carolina. The work we have already done has been significant, but we must begin to take a hard look at innovative approaches and not just continue to do business as usual. We need to be bold and innovative in addressing our housing crisis. Tonight, I am asking my fellow council colleagues to be bold and let us consider purchasing property that can become affordable housing for teachers, police officers, our firefighters, our city employees, and others across the city. If private companies can buy properties, why can't the city of Durham do the same and provide affordable housing to its residents? I'm asking y'all to think about it. Think about it. We have to be innovative in that space.
to where we began this season of Dreams of Black Wall Street, Wilmington, North Carolina. In episode three, listeners heard a recording of a video produced by the Cape Fear Museum in Wilmington describing a brief synopsis of the Wilmington insurrection and coup d'etat, as well as the impact on the city of Wilmington itself. Next, you're going to hear part two of that production, courtesy of New Hanover County and the Cape Fear Museum. After the violence of 1898, things changed. White supremacists govern the city of Wilmington, New Hanover County, and the state of North Carolina. New segregation laws are passed in this state, and in 1900, a new state constitutional amendment takes away the voting rights for African-American men. Over time, the black majority in this county changes. The black population decreases, and the white population increases. Although segregation and Jim Crow created hardship for African Americans, members of Wilmington's strong black community worked to make change. While there is no denying the difficulty of existing as a black person during the Jim Crow era of the early 1900s, it is important to recognize that parts of Wilmington's strong black community continued with the help of many dedicated individuals. Lethia Hankins attended the African-American High School Williston and then went on to teach there. She helped the community deal with desegregating the schools and later served on the city council. Dr. Hubert A. Eaton was another dedicated individual who contributed to the local fight for African-American civil rights. He supported desegregation of the schools, hospitals, and many other local institutions. Dr. Eaton also coached and mentored the famous tennis player Althea Gibson right here in Wilmington. She later became the first African-American tennis player to win a Grand Slam title. Later athletes like Meadowlark Lemon and Michael Jordan, both from Wilmington, would also go on to break barriers in sports and find success. History does not always equal progress. But history is full of stories that show resiliency and possibility. History can inspire us, teach us, and warn us. 1898 still affects our community today. But the stories of people like Hubert Eaton and Lethia Hankins show us that people's actions and choices mattered, and they remind us that our actions and choices matter too. We all have the power to continue to influence our community for a better future. Earlier in this season, we heard from Professor Irving Joyner of North Carolina Central University, as well as economist and Duke University professor, Dr. William Darity. Professor Joyner was vice chairman of the 1898 Wilmington Race Riot Commission, while Darity helped research the part of the report explaining the economic consequences for African Americans. Last year, the Institute for Economic Thinking published an article called America Hasn't Reckoned with the Coup that Blasted the Black Middle Class. In it, author Lynn Paramore explains how the 1898 Wilmington coup d'etat changed the course of history for Blacks in the United States. Quote, it was a horrific turning point for the country, marking the beginning of Jim Crow and poisoning race relations to the present day. Not only was it a stain upon North Carolina, but on the federal government too, which knowingly abandoned Black people to death and destruction. Yet, if you ask most Americans, they know little about it. This is partly due to the barrage of fake news and events circulated in the media at the time around the country, from Raleigh to Philadelphia to New York City. To help correct the record, in 2000, North Carolina's General Assembly established the 1898 Wilmington Race Riot Commission to investigate. The commission released its report in 2005. 
One of the commission's goals was to study the economic impact on Black people in Wilmington and the state. The report cited such problems as capital losses, less funding for education, and thus lower literacy rates for Blacks, and broken support networks. Duke University economist William Darity, a member of the commission, discussed the economic catastrophe in the documentary film Wilmington on Fire. He describes a blow that resulted in a significant decrease in the overall status of Black jobs in Wilmington and a steep decline in overall economic prospects. Going forward, the city had more Black service workers, fewer artisans, and entrepreneurs. Middle-class dreams were shattered. Commission member Harper Peterson said, Quote, essentially, it crippled a segment of our population that hasn't recovered in 107 years. End quote. Today, Black Americans still suffer from economic disrepair and exclusion from the American dream. They still face brutality from authorities, attacks on their civic rights, twice the unemployment rate of whites, and a pervasive structural wealth gap born in part of events like the coup and their aftermath. End quote. Earlier in the season, when Professor Darity and Professor Joyner spoke of the commission's findings, they both made similar points. Wilmington's Black community never recovered the level of prosperity it achieved prior to the massacre. When I visited Wilmington last year, that much was clear. Much of the predominantly Black neighborhood that was attacked in the insurrection, known as Brooklyn, faced significant economic challenges, particularly in the areas of housing and blight. Yet, in some areas of the same community, it was apparent that there were efforts to revitalize the neighborhood. Those efforts, however, have introduced a stark level of gentrification to Wilmington's Black community. I witnessed streets where on one side sat newly built homes, while many of the predominantly Black-owned or occupied homes on the other side of the street sat in disrepair. It was as though an imaginary railroad track separating the haves from the have-nots ran down the middle of the street. Elsewhere in the community, a newly opened beer garden, food truck, or restaurant on a seemingly well-lit, relatively safe street may lie feet away from a predominantly Black-owned business on an apparently less safe, underserved block. I don't know many people who would argue against neighborhood revitalization, It does seem, however, that residents I spoke to would like the prosperity to be more evenly distributed so that everyone benefits, particularly those who've lived there for more than a century. With regards to the economic despair many African-Americans are experiencing in Wilmington, the numbers bear that out. The extent of those disparities are described in an article published in Star News Online last year titled A Tale of Two Economies report shows Wilmington area's racial gender inequality. The article references a study by the Wilmington-based nonprofit Cape Fear Collective. The study analyzed U.S. Census data and reports by sources including the University of North Carolina, Wilmington, and New Hanover County from the last two decades. It found that economic inequality had increased in the Cape Fear region, which includes New Hanover, Brunswick, Pender, Columbus, Leyden, Robeson, Deplin and Onslow counties. Wilmington is located in New Hanover County. Quote, the report's findings suggest that despite the area's low unemployment and high growth rates, many minority residents don't have access to the same economic mobility or potential as their white male counterparts. Wage earners in the bottom 10th percentile saw their earnings decrease by 4.6% during that time, according to the report. Wages have increased for white workers over the last 20 years, but declined by an equal margin for Black workers, the report states. This trend is driven by the labor market giving higher wages to more educated workers. According to the report, 42% of Cape Fear's white adults have a bachelor's degree or more, while just 16% of Black adults have reached that level of education. End quote. Consider this. Prior to the 1898 Wilmington Massacre, Wilmington was a majority African-American city. Aside from the dozens and potentially hundreds of Blacks who were murdered on the day of the insurrection, over the next days and months, more than 2,100 other residents, mostly Black, left the city in a mass exodus. And over the decades, the Black population in Wilmington has steadily declined. Today, Wilmington is only about 18% Black. 
According to the same article, quote, approximately 30% of Cape Fear's Black residents, 28.4% of Hispanic residents, and 11.9% of white residents are living below the federal poverty line. Mapping median household income clearly shows the wealth disparities that exist in New Hanover County, forming a tale of two economies, according to the report. People living along the coast have an income well above the self-sufficiency standard, another measure of poverty, while those living near downtown Wilmington and in other inland areas make less than the standard, Haywood said. We see a shrinking middle class and shrinking purchase power for those people within those communities further inland, he said. Despite seeing a drop in unemployment in the last decade, the regional poverty rate has stayed the same because of increases in low-wage jobs and a lack of upward mobility in the low-wage labor market, according to the report. Findings show that earning potential splits along racial and gender lines. In the Cape Fear region, men working full-time earn about 20% more than women. That disparity increases when racial identity is taken into account. Across the board, all Black and Hispanic workers, regardless of gender, make significantly less than white non-Hispanic men, who are the region's highest earners. In New Hanover County, Black women made an average of $21,207 less than their white male counterparts, while Black men made an average of $16,318 less, according to data from the U.S. Census Bureau's 2019 American Community Survey. Hispanic women made $26,561 less than white males, and Hispanic men made $24,224 less, according to the 2019 American Community Survey data. These income gaps have widened over time. Between 2014 and 2019, the income gap between men and women rose by more than $2,200, and the gap between Black and white worker earnings increased by nearly 700 in New Hanover County. The gap between pay for Hispanic workers and white workers decreased nearly $1,900 over the same period in New Hanover, according to the report. End quote. Arguably, the prospects for many of Wilmington's Black residents today are far worse than they were more than a century ago. And that is saying a lot. Many experts believe a full reckoning and accounting of the events that plunged Black Wilmington into a state of decline beginning in 1898 are needed if true progress is to be made. I interviewed one woman who's made it her mission to educate the Wilmington community and beyond about the complicated history of the city and the state of North Carolina. My name is Letty Gore. I am a historian and a racial justice educator and activist. I have a podcast that I own and I'm the host of, which is called History Shows Us. I'm also a mediator and a facilitator. So I do a lot. I'm a speaker. I'm a panelist. I am extremely passionate about history, hence me being a historian. (laughs) And yeah, I love being able to work for myself. That's actually what I do right now. I got my master's in history from University of North Carolina at Wilmington in 2015. And with that, focused on Black history. And really, my subject was American history, but you have to learn everything. You can't just learn some stuff, right? So did that. And then I worked for a bit with nothing to do with history because uh, that's how it goes in reality out here. And then I taught at Cape Fear, which I know we're going to talk about that in a little bit. But then I went and I got my master's in conflict management and resolution and just finished that last May. Things really skyrocketed last summer with the murder of George Floyd. People wanted to know more about racism and justice 
and that kind of stuff. And I had already been doing this for a while. So it just happened that more people found me and I just went for it, educating. So Letty, I met you also when I went to Wilmington for the commemoration of the 1898 Wilmington insurrection and coup d'etat. And you were among actually a couple of journalists that I met that day. Journalists, historians, writers, researchers, I think all in that same category of folks. So you also mentioned that you did teach at Cape Fear Community College. You taught history, and I believe you focused on a lot of Black history. So can you just kind of tell me when you were doing that kind of work, what kind of reactions did you get from folks who were either students or just listening to your lecture about the Wilmington insurrection? And did you feel like people generally had a good understanding of it? Or did it just come out of nowhere for a lot of folks? Yeah, so actually at Cape Fear, I taught world history, actually. So that was an interesting part of growth for me. But also what I would do with the class is the first 10 minutes, I would just talk about current events. And so a lot of that was always something to do with racism, white supremacy in this country. And so because I was able to do what I wanted to do in my classroom, which was great. And I remember having conversations with my students and they would just not understand racism and white supremacy. And they were shocked by something. So, you know, we would talk about a current event that was happening, or I would bring up something that I read on a Huffington Post article or a New York Times article. And I would take those 10 minutes to kind of get into it and really get to the root of the issue, which is always going to be racism and white supremacy. And I impacted so many students with those 10 minutes. Not that I didn't impact them with like the rest of the class, but what I mean is we would even have conversations after class sometimes because of those first 10 minutes. And that was always just very glaring to me, how many students just didn't know how to even think critically about injustice, right? And also after I was no longer teaching at Cape Fear, I still would educate, just be like a guest speaker at different schools and that kind of thing. I've guest spoke at a few high schools before. I remember at one high school in particular, I was teaching them essentially about the 1898 race massacre. A friend of mine was a teacher there and they asked me if I would come in and talk about that because they couldn't necessarily talk about it like I would, right? Because they're a teacher there and there's curriculum, but I'm the guest speaker, so I can, right? So I went in and it was a class of all white students, except for one student who was a student of color. They weren't even black. And I just went in about the truth regarding 1898, but not just that day, what led up to it. Because people start with November 10th, 1898, and people don't look at 1896 or 1894, or 1865, right? They don't look at that as well, especially the early 1890s with the politics and things um, here in North Carolina. And I was telling them about certain people with certain last names, like McCray and Keenan, who were the ones that were perpetrators, right? And were the ones who were actively murdering Black people and how then we see where buildings and parks here have those names on them. And the students were just like, why has no one ever told us this? Why is there a park? Because at the time, Hugh McRae Park was still Hugh McRae Park. And now it's called Longleaf Park in Wilmington. It was renamed last year. But Hugh McRae was one of the nine that basically planned the coup. And whenever I told the students this, they were like, no way. Why is the park so named after him? Why has no one told us this? This happened downtown? Like, we didn't know. And a few of them had heard about it, but there's a very big difference with retelling history and actually interrogating history. And so that's something that I always like to include whenever I'm educating people is I'm not simply just retelling history. Like, I'm a trained historian. Like, there's a craft. There's, like, a methodology. You look at what's been said, and then you ask yourself, okay, what hasn't been said? And you look at different ways to prove something different, right? Or to get to the root of something else that's bigger. And also, right, it includes how to research, knowing how to find 
So there's like a lot that goes into it, but I remember that day in particular, so many of these white students looked betrayed. Like their faces were just like, what? Like no one told us this. I'm like, well, yeah, they're not going to. And I always take time during those talks to get people to then question what they're being told about other things, right? So yeah, ask yourself, why didn't anyone tell you about the truth regarding 1898 race massacre? Who is not telling the true history? Who is that protecting, right? What is that reinforcing? Why don't they want you to know the truth? And I remember one student said, well, if they're lying to us about this, what else are they lying to us about? And I was like, and that is the question. And in that moment, I was very happy because if I just get one or two to get to that point, I'm like, okay, I got it. Like I got at least one or two of them to then question, okay, well, I guess I got to look at everything else differently now. Yes. Yes, you do. Because we are all born into a white supremacist society and we're conditioned to think a certain way, especially whenever you get, like you grow up through public school, they don't want to teach you this stuff. Right. So I also find that whenever I'm on panels, I've been on so many panels, I'm talking about history and racism and 1898 and a ton of other historic events. But I always find that there's a level of critical thinking that I have that goes along with how I tell history that people don't think about, right? It's even things like with the 1898 race massacre, something that I was telling one group of people one time was these men, right? All of these men stood in front of Alex Manley's Daily Record newspaper shop, right? They're standing there as it's burning and they're just smiling and they're happy, right? Well, to a regular person, you would think, oh yeah, like they took the picture and then they went on. No, but you have to think about what it took to take a picture back then, like the time it took to take a picture. So it wasn't just a snap. No, no, no. You had to stand there. You had to pose. It took about 15 minutes, right, to take a picture. And so in that 15 minutes, you have people who were so proud, nothing in them changed, right? They were standing there with a burn building behind them. This happened with lynchings too, right? You're standing there for 15, 20 minutes, posing, taking a picture. That is absurd and evil, right? And so that is also what I want people to think about whenever they look at history is if we're going to talk about humanity, right? We have to talk about humanity and you have to humanize these people, right? You have to humanize them. And you can't just look at them as just a few bad racist white people who burned down Wilmington. No, 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 no. You have to think, how would you feel right now if there was someone who was getting hurt, who was getting punched, and you just stood there for 15 minutes while someone took pictures of you in front of them? You'd be like, oh, I would never. Okay, right. But these people did, right? And so that's also where I am with history is I want people to feel it to feel it, to get beyond just what makes you comfortable, really feel it. So That's actually great. And it leads into my next question, because you also have a master's in conflict management and resolution. And I wonder, what does that entail in your line of work? And how do you use it to teach history and to do the anti-racism work that you do? Yeah, funny enough, whenever I was getting that master's Actually, whenever I was applying for it, I was like, what? I mean, I know why I'm doing this, but I felt some higher calling. There's like a bigger purpose to it. And I was like, okay, I'm just, just going to be obedient. I'm just going to follow this. And I figured out a way in the program, which no one else was even doing this. I figured out a way to take what I was learning about mediation, facilitation, but also like the nervous system, the body, trauma. I learned a lot about trauma. It really was half mediation, facilitation, tangible skills. The other half was really learning the psychological aspects of things. It was about learning how trauma resides in our body and that kind of stuff. And so I was able to find how to incorporate history into that, into any paper that I wrote. I remember reading Bessel van der Kolk's book, The Body Keeps the Score, alongside Dr. Joy DeGrive's book, The Post-Traumatic Slave Syndrome. And the way my brain works, I was able to 
write a paper arguing something about Black people holding trauma in our bodies and how that has affected women, Black women with maternal health issues, because we don't think about how trauma is held, right? And this does go on for generations because DNA holds trauma. And that's like a new concept to people. Like, and it's really not even an accepted concept, honestly, or fact. We always have mediation sessions for custody battles and neighbor disputes and or workplace disagreements. But what about the conversations regarding racism and white supremacy? People don't know how to talk. People know how to argue. You don't know how to talk about it, right? You have to really figure out what else is going on with you to have these conversations. And that is how connected anti-racism work because anti-racism work is about you deciding what it means to be anti-racist, like really embodying that and knowing that being an anti-racist is not just something you can just work your way towards. It's a lifelong thing because it requires also to work towards dismantling the suppressive system that is in existence, right? And so I basically just figured out how I wanted to approach having these conversations, navigating racist conversations in a way for people besides things like, well, you could just say this to the person and that. No, also, you need to know what your triggers are. You need to know what your body is doing. What, what does your body do whenever someone says or calls you out on something outside of racism? Your hands might get sweaty. Your face might get hot. Well, be prepared for that to happen too whenever someone calls you racist or whenever someone's being racist and you're trying to figure out what to do in that moment. You have to be prepared. So that's also part of what I do is incorporating those tangible skills with mediation, facilitation, conflict resolution alongside how I educate about history, how I educate about having these conversations with people. And often they're combined, but also I'm a historian and I figure out how to have these conversations. And actually workshops that I've done, I did a few earlier this year, one I did in January that's sticking out to me with a college. I did it for their department of student affairs. And it was about how to navigate racist conversations. But to do that, I also had to bring in history, Black history, and how it's easy for white people and also non-Black people and non-white people, because that comes into a conversation with assimilation and whiteness and skin color, but it's not a conversation. But there needs to also be an understanding of the why, right? So whenever you are talking about having these conversations with someone or calling out a racist family member, it also means that you have to understand history as well and why it's necessary for you to do that thing. And you mentioned speaking in in schools at different grade levels. What do you think needs to change in terms of the education in this country, in terms of the way, you know, you mentioned the public curriculum in a lot of public schools, what they will and won't teach you, even more, I don't know if liberal is the right word, but even schools that embrace Black history more, there is a limit, you know, to what they will teach you. So what do you think needs to change or improve about our education system and the way this history is taught? And I want to specifically talk about Wilmington and North Carolina, because I know critical race theory and similar subjects have become a hot button issue in your state and others around the country. Yeah, definitely. Overall, I think what needs to change and what needs to change quickly is people understanding that this isn't trendy. It's not just a trend to talk about racism and white supremacy because 2020 was what 2020 was, right? With the murders of George Floyd and Breonna Taylor and Ahmaud Arbery and so many others, it was trendy to put Black Lives Matter on your company's page or to say you're going to donate money to something. It was a trend. And a big part of this too, for me, that I tell people is we have social media now. 
and things are instantly at our fingertips. And if someone else isn't posting about it, you're like, oh, well, I don't, I don't want to post about it either. I'm not, not going to likes. I'm not going to get follows because it's not trendy. That's a problem. That's a big problem. It's something that I often bring up whenever people want to compare today to the past history. They'll be like, well, it's very similar right now with what we're doing that was happening during the civil rights movement. Actually, yes and no. They're not the same. Similar, not the same. And also, they didn't have Instagram where John Lewis and Stokely Carmichael were looking at who was getting more likes with the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee. That didn't happen. They didn't know that. Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee in Greensboro, North Carolina, they didn't know if the one in Forsyth County, Georgia, was not agreeing with them on some things. They didn't know. They just knew they were all for a common cause. That's not to say everyone has got it wrong. It's not to say that. But it's to say how much social media affects what we choose to focus on. I also think that it's really important for the, the country as a whole to listen at what so many of us are saying and not care so much about the politics side of it, because politics and money run everything. They've always run everything in this country. I've seen it this year. We've seen it last year. And you mentioned critical race theory, and there's been so much inaccurate information about that in itself, right? People saying this when to teach white kids to not love themselves. What? No, that's literally not it. Go read just a snippet or listen to a snippet of what Kimberly Crenshaw said about critical race theory. I also believe that it's not enough for schools to say, like, oh, we're going to teach the 1898 race massacre and we're going to teach it for one day and we're going to talk about some of the things and not pay attention to the language that's being used, right? Not calling it a race riot and you call it a race massacre. Understanding that you need to call things out explicitly. It's not enough to be subtle about things. You need to call it out. But all of this collectively requires this country to acknowledge what it was founded on, the systems that it continues to allow to function, the systems that the country continues to run on are racist systems. The country needs to acknowledge that. It needs to accept that. It needs to reckon with that. That hasn't happened enough either. Because what I've seen, especially here in North Carolina, for example, the 1898 race massacre isn't even in curriculums like that. Wilmington 10. Do kids even learn about the Wilmington 10? Students even learn about the Wilmington 10? No, they don't even know who the Wilmington 10 were, right? And so why? Why? And also, we need to have people being consistent whenever they're calling things out and questioning and going to school board meetings. Like, we need consistency with that. That needs to continue to happen it's always been the people who have made the changes. It's never been the people who are higher up. It's always been the pressure from us that always have made the changes. And that also requires acknowledging that there's a lot of other factors that prevent that kind of stuff from happening, right? People work two and three jobs and can't always go to all the meetings because of capitalism. It's all connected. You actually mentioned social media, which gets to my next question, how a lot of folks focus on what's on social media. But I want to know, can we use social media to get younger generations engaged in these conversations with the purpose of not just having a conversation, but teaching them about this history that they may not know about, like a lot of your students at Cape Fear Community College, or what other things can historians do to get younger generations involved? Because what I find when I do this work, I am often interviewing older folks, professors, attorneys journalists, but older folks, not necessarily to say that age-wise they're older, but they have been steeped in this work for so very long. It's difficult to find younger generations who maybe don't have the same experience, but have just as much of a fire in them like you do for knowledge and who want to know about this history and teach others about it. Yeah, I definitely think social media can be extremely useful whenever it comes to reaching younger generations, for sure. I mean, I'm 33 years old, and I definitely am still influenced a lot by social media. And also, I see how it's impacting 
high school students, right? I see how they're using it to get their word out with Twitter and different hashtags and that kind of thing. Because we all are on social media often, right? I, I will even admit that. I'm on it a little more than I even want to be sometimes. But I do think social media can help the younger generation. I think it already has, right? Like it's, it's already started that. I mean, I think back to 2012, even with Trayvon Martin being murdered and how I saw social media skyrocketing a lot with people posting about Black Lives Matter and those sorts of things and people sharing whenever something happened to a Black person. That is useful, right? And so I think that's just going to continue to be helpful whenever it comes to social justice work and to calling out racism and those sorts of things because you do see younger people being influenced, right? And also wanting to understand because whenever you see someone that looks like you, right, that's around your age, you're going to want to listen to what they're saying, right? Like that's happening a lot on TikTok even. I mean, I have TikTok for different reasons, for mental health reasons, for looking at those kinds of TikToks and cooking and that kind of stuff. But I also come across people who are just educating about injustice, who are just talking on there, right? And you read the comments and yeah, you have comments where people are being ridiculous, but you also have the comments where people are finding that because this person said something, now I can say something too. And I think that's really important as well. So yeah. As always, I thank you for listening. Whether you've been with us from the beginning or you hopped on for the ride along the way, I appreciate you. I'll be taking a bit of a break as I usually do in between seasons. This break may be a bit longer as I'll be working on some family business while also planning, preparing, and putting together the next season. In the meantime, if you want to hear a bunch of super smart people talk about a bunch of fascinating topics, including history, make sure to register for this year's Intelligent Speech Conference. Yours truly will again be one of the presenters. Just search for Intelligent Speech Conference online to register. Here's a bit more about it from the organizers. Until next season, happy listening. someone else's podcast let's not intrude too much you've got 30 seconds to tell this wonderful listenership about the conference shoot oh okay uh intelligent speech is back again it's a conference that brings together your favorite educational podcasters with their fans in an intense one-day online extravaganza it's all happening online on june 25th starting at 10 a.m eastern standard time between the three keynotes and the 42 individual sessions and roundtables, it's a three-ring circus of online content. Wow, what are they going to be speaking about? Our theme this year is crossings of one form or another. Very arty, very chic. Amazing. Where can people get tickets? Intelligent Speech Conference, all one word, dot com. And tickets are $30, but if you act now, you will get the early bird special of $20. And if you use this show's promo code, which hopefully the host will shortly provide, you will save an additional 10%. Wow! Cue rousing music. Oh, Mr. Blah. Hey!